at this point, are you still part-time employee or are you full, no, are you full-time. Trans- full-time? Yeah. Yeah. Were you making just as much money as you were before? Oh no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Customers walked in, I was attending them and giving them the full experience. I couldn't afford having a full-time staff, so I had to do things myself. At night, I was delivering products to the store and filling the bags. So it was good times, good memories, a lot of hustling. And you're working 70 hours a week, so you're making less than minimum wage. That was a slow week. <laughs> All right. My name is Eyal Levy. I'm 43 years old, located in Nashua, New Hampshire. We're about 45 minutes outside Boston. I'm with Yogibo. Yogibo started as a company that makes and design new generation of beanbags and turn into a whole lifestyle of awesomeness. E-Y-A-L. I haven't heard that name before. Are you from here? Well, I was born in Israel. Okay. So I'm originally from Israel. Yeah. The origin of the name. You're born there. And how long were you there? I have been living in the States a little over 11 years. Okay. So yes, majority of your life was in Israel? Uh-huh. Yep. Your company today, you do beanbags. Is it like basically exclusive to that? Or do you want to run us down a little bit more about the company? Sure. The company started a little over nine years ago with the idea of creating and selling really unique and new generation of beanbags. For those who haven't tried it, it's hard to explain, but we're using super stretchy and durable fabric with the frictionless beads. So it creates a feeling like the product completely conforms to your body with no pressure points. So when people try it and sit on the product, they're kind of like amazed because it's some kind of feeling that they haven't felt before. The idea started a few years earlier, actually with the need of comfortable pregnancy. My wife was pregnant. We were just looking for something she can sleep comfortably on her belly. And we discovered the stretchy fabric, uh, filled it, and she had a comfortable pregnancy. And then we had the product at home and our friends just came, visits, sat on it asked us to make us one because it's the most comfortable thing they ever tried. And we just started making them for friends. And then friends of friends started to ask for them. And this is kind of like how the idea for the company started. So we were basically filling them in the basement, just selling them to close circle of friends, and then started a website, started to do some wholesale accounts to sell to specialty stores around us. We just got more and more demand and we decided to take the company to the next level, which creating more direct channels, concept stores. And this is kind of like how we develop the company further. Well, I haven't been pregnant before. So are you supposed to lay down on your belly when you're pregnant? Well, if you like to sleep on your belly, (laughs) not everybody likes. (laughs) So yeah, I guess I sleep on my side. So I didn't know if that's a way that you're supposed to sleep or okay. So she's used to sleeping that way and she wanted to keep being able to sleep that way. And so that's kind of how it started. Yeah, exactly. So did she try another beanbag before or like what made you have this concept? Because you're just kind of talking about finding stretchy fabric and being able to do it. Yeah, it's just kind of like we saw this fabric and we were playing with the filling, found the, the right filling for it. And that was kind of like solved the problem for her. And so it just slowly kind of grew from your friends doing it. And you had a full time job. Other than that, you were just doing this to fill a need for them and your friends at first. Yeah. So I had a full time job. I was actually managing operations for medical equipment company at that time. Something completely different. But my project was about to finish. I was relocated actually to this place where we live now in New Hampshire to set up the operations for that company. And I didn't want to continue and stay and manage the day-to-day operations. So I was actually really looking for something to do. I'm coming from family of entrepreneurs. My dad had his own company, my grandfather. 
the entrepreneurship spark was in me and I was looking for idea and something to run with. After the first reactions that we got from friends and customers, I decided that probably this is it. In your free time, were you just always listening to like business podcasts or something or trying to read about entrepreneurship and you're waiting to come across hopefully a good idea? Yeah, I mean, I've had experiences in different companies before. My passion was marketing. I studied before then the MBA and I was very interested in companies. We did projects with different companies in the U.S. and outside the U.S. I was very interested at the marketing aspects of things and the branding, building a brand, the product. I was very interested in that. And of course, listening to podcasts and books as well. So Yoga Bo was your first company though, right? That you had started by yourself? Yeah. I mean, before then I had an experience with a tech startup company in the social media world, but that's kind of like... You started Facebook? <laughs> I wish, but something... <laughs> <laughs> I wish, but something not that far from Facebook before even Facebook started. We were just weren't serious about it as Mr. Zuckerberg, I guess. But that was kind of like taught me some lessons that I took over for Yogi Bowen because I wasn't the tech guy in that company. And one of the lessons that I learned is really to know all the ins and outs of the entire business so I can have full understanding with everything that is going on. Well, it sounds like we got a basic background of kind of your company and where you're doing today. And you had mentioned that you grew up in Israel. If you don't mind, why don't we jump back then and then we'll talk about chronologically how you got to where you are today. Sure. You grew up in Israel. I assume you're Jewish. I am. Yeah. What's it like over there? I guess you didn't have anything to compare it to at that same age, but now looking back, being raised there and what's it like? Because I have no idea what the lifestyle is like. If I compare, you know, the way my kids grown up here in the U.S., I think that the one thing in Israel is for kids growing up is the independence. Since we were like even elementary school or high school, we were hiking and taking public transportation and doing a lot of stuff on our own. And that's something that I see, at least in the U.S. where I live now, kids don't have as much independence. There's also a lot of involvement in the community. So we were very involved in things like Boy Scouts and volunteering in the community and being very active. And then, of course, at the age of 18, there is a mandatory military service, which definitely has a huge impact. You learn a lot of values of teamwork and discipline and hustling. So I'm very thankful for that experience. And definitely, I took a lot from that to my personal life, my business life. We start our lives a little later than normally after the military service. A lot of the people, almost all my friends, we went traveled the world. So I was backpacking in South America for a year. And then we start college or university at the age of, for guys, it's the age of 23 after you got many different experiences traveling the world and with military service and you kind of like more settled and you're ready to get into the academic life. So how many years of service do you have to do then? The mandatory for males is three years. Okay. And you said you learned a lot of things. Is there one thing in particular that you can remember that you kind of pulled and shaped you to who you are today? Well, first of all, I got friendships and brotherhood that are irreplaceable and the values of teamwork and support each other. The things that I got to my, let's say, professional life, the discipline and never give up. And which there are a lot of moments, especially in entrepreneurship, that definitely that thought kind of like crawling and about to, you know, cross your mind. But the discipline of never give up, keep going no matter what, it's something that I definitely took from there. 
Was there like one dangerous moment that you can remember that was like your most dangerous while you're doing that? There were a few. I mean, my job was basically to rescue people. In several moments, we had situations. We were under extreme, say, weather conditions or very risky situations. And so definitely was quite the risk, but we survived it. Well, it seems like also it might make you appreciate life a little bit more having to do the mandatory thing with Israel, like being in the army or were you in the actual army? Was that it? Yeah. I mean, it's the Air Force, but yeah. From there, you said you traveled for a little bit in Africa, was it? South America. South America. Okay. Yeah. So that's pretty far away. Why do you want to go there? You know, a lot of my friends did. I mean, it was kind of like attracted me. A lot of the hiking, I really liked hiking. The fact that also there are two languages and I like learning languages, then you can connect with most of the population and that attracted me a lot. I love cultures. I love learning new cultures. I was less into the touristic part of sightseeing, but more connect with the local populations and getting connected to their cultures. And then you come back to Israel, you went to university? Yep. My undergrad was industrial engineering. So from there, are you in the capital there or where in Israel? Israel is so small, so everywhere you go, but uh, that was the south of Israel. So you go to school there and then come out, get an MBA. So do you want to walk us kind of through what you did work life as well? Yeah. So even the first couple of years in college, I had a couple of jobs. One of them was to work with kids with special needs, which I loved. And the other one was teaching, which I loved too. So those two things I taught for SATs and it was great. And then from junior year, I was starting my internship at Intel and where also I got my first job as an engineer, the Intel facility in Israel. So that was great experience to kind of like see how it is to work in a very solid like oiled machine and learn the right processes and how to work in a very organized environment and was a great place to work. But then after a few years, I also realized that as great as a lesson as it was, I wanted to work in smaller companies. And then decided to go back and get your MBA? Yeah, after I left Intel, I joined the family business and I did several positions there, including operations and quality and marketing. And I gained different experiences in different departments and areas. And this is when also I did my MBA, which was amazing experience. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your family business and what that was like, how many people worked there and working with your family? Yeah, so actually I was working with my dad from whom I learned so much about so many different things about disciplines and a lot about building relationship with all of your partners, whether it's vendors or customers or just regular business partners, attention to details and how every detail matters. So it was a company that manufactured plastic parts, mostly technical, but not only. And we worked with many different industries, whether it was biotech and just consumer goods. I happened to do a lot of super interesting projects and work with industrial designers and see great products, how they kind of like evolve from idea on the paper into something really amazing. I've been there for probably about three years until my dad decided to sold this company or sold his part of the company. So how many people were working there? 
about a hundred. Wow. Okay. So that's a pretty big company. So why did he decide to sell? Just his personal reasons. And he wanted to half retired or do something else. And he had great opportunities. So he made it happen. That makes sense. I mean, I didn't know if there's anything you learned from him selling a company because at first anyone who's listening might just be thinking about growing right all the time, but they might not think about the exit. So I didn't know if there are certain things you're learning other than relationships about selling a company or anything else before we move on to where you went to next. Yeah, I mean, definitely the selling process. I learned from it, but it's different situation. And he ran the company for probably about 25 years. So pretty good run. And he had a great opportunity. It makes sense. I mean, if you can sell when you have a great opportunity, that's better than a bad opportunity, right? Yeah. So from there, what happened then? Yeah, so I joined this company that, you know, I had great relationship with amazing people. There were used to be a customer of mine and they started a new company and they recruited me. I was about to set up operations in Israel for that company. And one thing led to another and there was a decision to do the operations in the U.S. And we decided to relocate and move to lovely New Hampshire. And who's we? My wife and I and two kids at that time. Yeah. So how did that talk go? It was great. I mean, obviously moving is always, you know, there are challenges, but it was exciting. We wanted kind of like the change. We both love to experience different cultures. So it was good. As far as when you took that job opportunity, were they going to pay you a lot more money or did you just want to go to the U.S.? Like what were your decisions in moving basically halfway across the world? I think that it wasn't about money. It's more about living in a different place. And it's not that we had, it was bad living in Israel. It was just to try a different experience, but also to set up something new from scratch and that was kind of like a challenge that I wanted to be part of. Those were the two main reasons. And was any part of you worried about it? I mean, was your like the rest of your family sad to see you go? They were, yes, but... I don't know. Maybe they were happy. I don't know. Mine yeah, might, mine yeah, might be happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> happy to get rid of me. Yeah. You know, they were sad, but we wanted it and we just went with it. And like many other things I've done, you jump to the water and you figure out how to swim. And... It was great. I mean, the beginning, obviously, there were challenges. And overall, it was good years, good memories. Well, how about you tell us about some of those challenges for someone who has no idea what it's like to move to America, what you have to deal with from another culture? Getting familiar. I mean, the whole health system was completely different coming from a social country that we just go to the doctor and pay a couple of dollars as a copay and you don't have to worry about those things. Now you're getting into like medical insurance and different deductibles and different things that you're completely not familiar with. And school system is quite different. Obviously, Israel is a culture that is very straightforward very similar to other European countries. And we had to do some adaptations and especially New England part of the US. It's not as much learning and adapting into new cultures. That was actually the fun part. We figured it out. <laughs> well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was gonna be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. Becoming a patron was something that I was always like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I was delaying it for whatever reason. 
and the other day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it, and uh, and that's it. So I'm very happy with it. Nice. Well, thank you for joining. So was there anything holding you back? It was just uh, taking the time to do it. Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located? Here in Bolivia, in South America. Cool. Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America. So thanks for that again. And um, I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions and I'm just there to facilitate it. Well, what do you mean by straightforward? You're saying Israel is pretty straightforward and some of the other European countries. Again, I mean, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, so I've never experienced like a move like that. I don't really know the differences. Take, for example, in Israel, like in the workplace, right? If you make a mistake, then somebody can come to you and say, hey, you made a mistake. It's pretty bad, but let's fix it. And very straightforward without too much sugarcoating. And I was never in the workplace, never aggressive person, I guess, or I never yelled or anything. I was just pointing things as they are. And I learned that I should use maybe different ways to say some things and, you know, maybe more sandwiching and start with compliment and build it up to, you know, more, not that it wasn't constructive, but kind of like giving the feedback more softly, I guess. Yeah. We're sensitive Americans, you're saying, right? (laughs) I mean, it's just a culture. It's not about sensitive. It's about norm. It's about if you say something as you say things in Israel, you are considered an aggressive person. And in Israel, you wouldn't be. So it's just a matter of norm and and how people react. So if I say the same thing, people would think I'm mad, but I wasn't. Right. (laughs) So it's just like little adaptations, which it's part of the fun. No, that makes sense. And then, well, you were talking about like seems a lot was the healthcare, having to deal with that, especially when you have young kids. Is there anything else that stands out? How about it, like as far as making friends when you're from Israel? Did you know anyone where you were moving? We didn't know, definitely in our area, but we make friends quite fast everywhere I travel in the world. I mean, I think I can make friends fast. Again, there's a culture difference in Israel. You just drop by and knock on the door and get in and you can stay at your friend's house a few hours without much planning. And here it was more of a planning and planning advance. And again, it's part of the fun. You start this new job. Is your wife working at the same time? Not at the first year. Okay. Can you get us an idea of like general, how much money you were making at this point in time? I made a decent salary let's say, average salary for my position at that time, which enabled us to live well. Well, I'm just trying to build up to like how much money you would have to save to start your older company, especially when you're moving from Israel. Those are kind of the few things that we want to pull out to make sure that people who are listening can understand like how they can get up to a point where they can start their own product business, if you will. Are we talking about like 150K range? We started with less. So we had our life savings. And for the first stage of the company, of course, we didn't pull any salaries. And I had a guy that I met here who kind of like co-founded the company with me. He had the technical background and started it together. And the initial money that we put in was, I want to say about $30,000 to start the initial idea. But then when we made the first proof of concept and we started so lean, I mean, I built the website myself and pretty much did everything myself while I was working seven days a week. And then about probably seven months after or eight months after we got seed money from a friend who joined us to take the whole idea to the next level. Why don't we name the company? How do you say it? VI flow that you were working for before? Yeah, that was via flow back then. Yeah. Via flow. Yep. All right. Before we jump to you starting your own company. So you're making enough to 
provide for your family and your wife wasn't working that you're saving up a little bit, but not maybe a ton to invest into the company. And you did that for several years. And then while you're at VFLOW, eventually you get tired of it there. And that's when you decide to go to a trip. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. So I was first working full-time at VFLOW. And then after a couple of years working at Viaflow, that's kind of like how the idea for to start the company started. And I was still working, but working less, working at Viaflow like four days a week and starting this idea. And then seven months after, I quit Viaflow to do Yogibo full time. So it was a side business at first. So you're kind of making that transition. So what can we learn from you from doing that as far as you've been over here for a couple of years, saved a little bit, and then trying to delegate your time where you can start doing a side business like this? I think that I had the option of making at least because I didn't want to leave job and then find out that this idea doesn't work or I can't make it work. So being able to scale down and work less at my day job, tried to do a proof of concept and see if the idea works and create the first buzz and worth for the idea and the company to be able to raise more money and take it full time. How did you get your company that you're working for, Viaflow, to like buy into you only working four days a week? Do you have any suggestions on being able to like talk to your boss or whatever about working less days, it sounds like? I don't know if you're working more hours during those four days or tell us a little bit more in detail about the transition. The transition was the majority of the work that I had, which was kind of like setting up the operations, was done and it was transition time from startup mode into a more solid company. I think it was, I wasn't as needed as much probably for what I did. And it was either taking new responsibilities or new role or just kind of like reducing my hours. And I think it worked well for both parties. Yeah. So that worked perfectly. Like you were saying that it happened where you were working, they didn't need you as much. So you could do less hours and then you started doing more hours in yoga. Bo. So let's jump to that a little bit more and talk about how much you were working. Cause it sounded like you said for a second, you were working there for a lot. So basically the transition point was when we opened our first store. So one of the things we learned in the first year of business is that the products are so tactile and it's really hard to explain how comfortable they are or how they feel through online or through other wholesalers or resellers. So we had this idea that we wanted to have a physical presence where we can really tell the whole story, get the customer, the full demonstration, the full experience experience that they need to. We decided to open our first brick and mortar store. It was in one of the upscale malls outside Boston. Well, one second, if you don't yeah. mind stopping, did you not start with like a website and everything first before jumping into a store? Yeah, so I did. So that was kind of like the first, I mean, we launched the website that was August. Of 2009? 2009, yeah. And 2009, we had several wholesale accounts, some specialty stores around that we worked with and kind of like knocked on doors and got them to try the product and got them to be excited about the product. And then we did some small events where we invited people to show them the products and almost like a Tupperware party, <laughs> except that, you know, the, it was a little bigger and the products were bigger. Then in May 2010, which is about nine months after, we decided to open the first store. And then again, before we jump to the store, I just want to make sure that we don't skip over like you making the product and everything. 
because uh, you're selling, you're selling some, but like, how did you find someone to help you make the product? Were you making the product yourself? We sourced the covers with a company, with a vendor, and we found the beads locally with really local manufacturer to kind of like source the right beads that some trial and error and to find the filling that we wanted. And then the first few months, we really filled them in the basement in not quite efficient way. And then we took a bigger warehouse. A friend of mine just had a building that they didn't use and we used that to fill more products. And then in April, we worked and my partner and I on finding more sources and developing a better fabric that will be more durable and stronger and also can comply with the regulations to get into schools and other institutions. And we found more sources that we worked with. And this is kind of like on the manufacturing and supply chain. Okay. That's kind of what you were doing before with ViaFlow, right? Yeah. I mean, different industry, of course, but I had a lot of experience with supply chain and working with overseas vendors and gained some experience, especially with Southeast Asian facilities and manufacturers. So there's a lot to learn there because working with some of those companies, it's a whole science. You were saying all the people that you worked with at first were close nearby your house, right? The vendors. Yeah. Tell us about what mistakes you made early on in making the product before we jump up to the retail stores. Cause I know you have quite a few retail stores today, but I think these early like six months to a year is very interesting because you can go a lot of different ways and hopefully not make many mistakes, but I'm sure some were made. Yeah. I'm trying to think what mistakes we've done there. I mean, obviously we were saving every dime we could. So needless to say, the operations and assembly wasn't as efficient as it could. But I think overall, we managed to stay very lean. And so I don't know if anything I would have done different for the first year, at least. Well, how about like fabric or like talking to people? Do you have any tips for anyone who would want to start their own product company? Maybe not obviously in your niche, but in general, that would have been way better to know. Because I mean, you didn't have any background in finding beanbags, right? But you understood kind of setting up operations and whatnot, but just finding these people and putting it together, like, is there any mistakes that you can think of? I think one of the things that really made a big transition is finding a couple of vendors overseas and people is everything, right? And one of the things I've done is to go to Asia and connect with the manufacturers and really build relationship. Working on building a relationship makes such a big difference when you build partnership and relationship with somebody. The first time I remember that, April 2010, I went there and I spent a couple of days with one of the owners of those companies that we've been having amazing relationship with for the last nine years almost. And I think that building relationship and partnership with your supply chain is crucial for the success. So what'd that do with your costs that you're using locally with those manufacturers compared to overseas? It's definitely changed. I mean, it's also the trick is when you work with overseas is how to obviously the quantities are bigger. So you need to create that critical mass. And it's kind of like catch 22 because you want to grow and create that critical mass to be able to generate those quantities. But we were lucky that with the relationship we built for the early days, they cut us some slack with quantities but we were able to ramp up really, really fast to fulfill that. So, Because if it took me longer, I'm not sure I would have been able to continue those relationships. 
Can you give us a roundabout number of how much it costs you to make a beanbag before and then what it costs after, after you use an overseas manufacturer? The difference was not huge in terms of percentage of the total cost because still, even today, when it comes to the beanbags, we purchase the filling locally and we do the assembly locally. So more than half of the cost is still being made in the U.S. Okay. And so what are you getting from overseas then? So we started with beanbags and like I said, we developed it into a whole lifestyle. It was more to expand the line and do the smaller product. One of the things when we opened the first store, we had probably less than 10 products, you know, mostly beanbags and big pillows around it. And the first few months were great. People bought the product. They were super excited about it. And they came back and asked, all right, what else you got? One of the things we realized is in order to have the brand sustainable. There's so many beanbags that a person would buy in a lifetime and we needed to expand the line. So we worked hard on launching more products, smaller products. And this is where the overseas supply chain really became handy because when it comes to smaller products that involved labor, there's just no way to make them, unfortunately, locally. This is where kind of like our partnership with the overseas manufacturers really came into play. Okay. So yeah, you did that several years later when you realized you had to expand the line. Yeah. Even after probably from year two, we just started to work on new products. So a few months after we opened the stores and we realized people are coming back and looking for more products and the model would not be sustainable if we continue to sell just those products. It's just business-wise, it can't work. Then we started to work fast on new concepts, new ideas, new products. And you know, from year two, we just launched 10 products and a year after 10 or 20 more. And we kept going every year since we know that we have to expand the line. Why don't you talk to us about opening your first store? Cause that's a whole different ball game versus just selling online. Absolutely. And I didn't have retail experience before was really jumping into the deep water. So we were a few years later, I realized that sometimes companies invest hundreds of thousands of dollars of setting up a store. And we just had the opportunity. Again, we built relationship with that mall and we got this opportunity. I got with four or three people that I knew and we painted the store ourselves. We did everything ourselves, got it to look really good or compared to what it looked with very minimal investment with all the bright colors and the bright products. It actually looked pretty good. People thought we're like a whole new concept from Sweden and Japan and, you know. You're from Israel. Yeah. And for the amount of money we invested, it was actually pretty quite all right. And so this was just a space in a mall? Yeah, it was an inline store in a mall. And the first year, I remember I basically did everything. We opened the store, it was May, and it was a beautiful month in New England. And everybody goes to the beach and the lake and the mall was, foot traffic was quite slow. So we were trying to figure out how to bring people in. And this is when we started to sign up for festivals. We went to festivals, we put up a booth there and just let as many people as we could experience the products. And then they showed up at the store after seeing it in those different festivals. We also did a lot of guerrilla marketing, whether it's placing the products in different places, doing partnership with the mall of having our products in story time and different things. And it caught up and more and more 
people knew about it and came to the store. And during those dead moments, basically the store was my office. So I was running the books, accounting, marketing, everything from the store. When customers walked in, I was attending them and giving them the full experience. I couldn't afford having a full-time staff, so I had to do things myself. At night, I was delivering products to the store and filling the bags. So it was good times, good memories, a lot of hustling. Hopefully that helped. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life. You're like, we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups. So, I mean, when we vocalize it, we talk and something else will enter our brains and, and we're like, okay, yeah, there it is. Nice. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Rock. At this point, are you still part-time employee or are no, you full, full are time? Full-time, yeah. Yeah. Were you making just as much money as you were before? Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us how much of your money you personally like were making this first year or two or three. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was a ridiculous amount. I mean, probably compared to what I used to make, probably like 40000 or 50000 after I got to full time and I used life saving and some support from the family and was just could pay whatever. And you're working 70 hours a week, so you're making less than minimum wage. That was a slow week. <laughs> yeah, I oh, oh, gotcha. <laughs> so yeah, it sounds like you're doing a lot. I mean, did you just trust in yourself that, hey, this is going to work and we're going to make a lot of money one day? Yeah, I mean, I trusted that it's going to work. I was very determined about it. I was willing to put everything I got in it. I really believed in it. So yeah willing to take that risk. Yeah. Did anyone not believe in you? You have always people that come and being devil advocates and saying, hey, you know, who's going to pay $200 for a beanbag? Are you crazy? And it's important to listen to everybody. Not everybody understand the full picture. You know, a lot of people come and give you advice and they don't see the whole picture. But I think I was able to filter that. But I took a lot of great advices from many different people that helped me in different situations in the early days of the business. It was good that you were able to filter that, but I think sometimes everyone thinks that everyone's going to be on board and rooting for you, but then you realize that maybe not everyone is, right? Whether well, it might be a customer who's not happy or maybe some a family member who doesn't believe in you, and which kind of stinks, but you have to be able to rise above that and still be able to push on. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I had like, I got a lot of support from the family and they totally believed in me. And, you know, I don't think I had that, but it's more question about the way we did things and whether this model is going to work and whether this product is going to work. You get a lot of advices from many different people. It's important to listen to them, but at the same time, filter and realize that not everybody always see the entire picture and the entire vision. So what was like your lowest point over those first couple of years of opening the business? Well, I think after probably end of 2010, our business is so seasonal being in an industry that is more gifting. We're very based on holiday sales, like many other retailers. And managing cash flow is the key here. I think the second year, the end of 2010, I was not completely aware of the importance of that. It's not that we got us to a super risky point, but I kind of like felt the financial pressure. And this is when I realized that I really needed to manage cash flow by the week. It was so important because sometimes you look at your P&L on a quarterly basis or monthly basis and everything looks good on the P&L, but managing cash flow is different, especially in a startup in the early days. I mean, you really have to manage the cash flow by the week. And especially if you're stocking up inventory for a busy season, it's even more crucial. That's kind of like the big lesson that I learned in the second year of 
the importance of that and how important that is, how see all the red flags when they come up and come up with contingency plan. And it's all about managing the cash flow. So many great ideas didn't make it for this reason. Especially in a product-based business like you're talking about, right? I mean, you might not have to worry about that nearly as much in a service-based business, but... Absolutely, yeah. Or software, yeah. You said at one point, did you bring on a partner to help you and get some money as well? Yep. That was right before we opened the first store. Then we the seed money. So tell us about like partnering with somebody. Is it because you came up with the concept, right? Yeah. So I came up with the concept and our friends. So I had the friend of mine who founded the company with me. So we were like two partners. I was the main shareholder, but we both partners. And then a friend of us looked at the idea, got really excited about it, did his due diligence for a few months, observed it in the early months of the proof of concept, had a lot of conversations, and he decided to join the team and put some money in it. So that was like your third partner that you brought on yep. at that point? Okay. So was that enough to buy all the products that you needed? Because at the same time, is this when you're figuring out you need more money to buy these types of items for your store? It's setting up the first store and the second one. And it's mainly working capital that we needed, inventory. Yeah, that was pretty much for this reason. So how many stores do you have today? Today we have 30 stores in the US. The company owns stores. And we have today about almost 100 distributors own stores outside the US. And tell us what you've learned from that first store to second store. And if you don't mind, we'll reel back just a little bit. I just want to get an idea of how many stores you have. But what you're learning about retail, at least when picking locations or dealing with the type of people what that might work in those locations, tell us what you learned, at least over those first couple of years. So it was a big jump between having like the five stores and continuing to open more stores when it was just five stores. I was super involved with the team, with the staff, with training them, with coaching them and how to scale that and build sales team. And that was kind of like a hard move. And now you have to put like good training programs in place. You need to have good reporting systems, good monitoring. So putting all those processes, it's so easy to do when you have like four stores or five stores and you can move around and see everything. But to scale that and build a sales organization, that was kind of like the challenge. Again, luckily I recruited or I had great people working with me to help me do that. And that's what we've done in probably year three and year four and is putting infrastructures and processes and training programs to keep the same experience. Because one of the things we're proud of is to get our customers having really amazing experience when they're getting into the stores. It's all about the customer experience maintaining that and maintaining the level that we wanted when we grew the business, that was a challenge that we worked hard on. And for you personally, was it hard to give up that control? And it sounds like you were making a switch as far as your role in the company. Just tell us about that and if that was difficult for you. I had an amazing woman. Her name is Mary Pat. She joined and she took the position of director of retail. That allowed me to step back away from the stores because there were so many other things to do, you know, marketing and finance and coming up with new ideas for new products and managing the whole business. I still was involved very much with the stores, but at least managing it and overseeing this organization or this division of the company that was able to kind of like let go. 
as far as your role, I mean, was that easy for you to do? Because sometimes when you're getting involved and like you said, in the beginning on an easy week, you're working 70 hours doing everything and then transitioning to CEO and stepping back. Did you have any issues with that? Or I know sometimes they get an owner will get so involved in the company that it's hard for them to realize that they need to step back and put these other people in control. Yeah. I mean, it's the dream of every entrepreneur should be to find the right people that can do the job as good or better than you for that specific area so you can let go and focus on other things, right? And always be able to handle the weak link or be able to grow the business or just sit back and relax, right? We're not there yet. So I was fortunate over the years in different areas to find great people that enabled me to let go. And a few years later, it was on marketing and then finance and different areas that along the years I was able to let go and let other people do. Any tips on finding those great people? Because it seems like that's usually the hardest part. I always hear that, get great people, which we all would like to do, but it seems like you have to go through a lot of people and to get those great people. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard. I think that one of the things earlier in my career was to be recruiter to my department. So I was in charge of recruiting engineers to the department that worked for Intel. And so I gained some experience with that and taking the time and breaking the walls and making sure that the person you're interviewing or the people you recruit, you let them be more themselves, challenge them with a lot of questions, professional questions, but also personal questions. And it's always hard to know. I think also the thing is to not to wait too long if you come to the conclusion that you might have made the wrong decision. That's another thing that I learned and I see all around people make this mistake is you recruit is like, oh, maybe it's not it. Let's wait. Let's give it a chance. Let's give it more chances. And time goes by and then it's hard to make the switch and be able to make those changes when there is no choice is important. Coaching is you recruit somebody and you train and it's so hard to know. But one of the main things or steps in the process that when we build a sales team in our stores or wherever it is is the coaching part, is observing and looking at our staff, whether behavior or the way they work and giving them constructive criticism and building them up and just constant coaching. So was there ever a time with Yugobo that you wanted to give up and just think about going to a regular job? No, there are a lot of times that you're thinking, you know, what the heck am I doing here? And you know, <laughs> wake up at 4 a.m. and go to a trade show and you van and drive three hours and you work 16, 17 hours a day and exhausted, but I didn't have that moment of giving it up. Just pull yourself and telling yourself that failure is not an option and we're going to make it happen. Is there a certain routine that you have now that works well for you? Yeah. I wake up every day at around 5, 5.30. I work a lot with Asia. We have big distribution there and great partnerships with amazing people. So at 5.30 a.m., it's 5.30 or 6.30 p.m., so they still work and we can still chat and connect and discuss things. And after working normally an hour or two, I either run outside or do the gym. I got to do my exercise daily. That's my therapy. Then breakfast and start my day at the office. And then you usually get home around what time? I try to get home. I mean, when I don't travel around six and have time for myself. And normally around 9 p.m., I had another couple hours of work when working with the Asian time zone. So I guess then you're hitting them up in the morning at that point, huh? Yeah, exactly. Sounds like you still work hard even today. Yeah, I mean, it's still, <laughs> but... Some people like get to a point, you know, where you want to relax more. I don't know if you've always been like that or what keeps driving you today. 
I do have a path right now. One of the links that I'm working on and getting somebody to help me is more the relationship with our partners overseas. I have a path how to make it happen so I don't have to work as many hours late at night or really early in the morning. Hopefully it will happen soon. What's one question that you wish I asked you or people in general that you wish asked you that they don't? Maybe the thing that really drives me I really enjoy what I'm doing and I think that's a key thing to the entrepreneurial life because if I didn't enjoy it as much, I don't know if I would have kept going so hard, you know, and hustle for such a long time. And I think that's a really key that you really got to love and be super passionate about what you're doing and also find a purpose. Why are you doing it? And one of the things that I'm so passionate about is our involvement with the community and how much the product make a huge difference for some people. Kind of like those things every entrepreneur should ask questions like, why am I doing it? Because if there's no clear reason and vision, it's not so sustainable. And yeah, and then I think that's when you might start slowing down. That's what happened with my other company. I, I just like, uh, it's kind of getting to a point. I'm like, oh, why am I still doing this? For you personally, were you always like that even your old jobs or were you probably? No, no. So it's right when you started your own company, you started that work ethic really pumped up big time, huh? I always had really work ethics and I always worked hard and probably much more than the average. But in the other jobs that I had, I liked certain things and there were certain things that I didn't like. There was always the after the weekend, Monday, okay, we're getting back to work. Right now for me, it was like getting back to work. It's just another day I'm super excited about. And so I love what I do. And I didn't have that feeling in the other jobs that I had. And it's not only because it's mine, because if this is the only reason, then it shouldn't be. You should be really passionate and whether it's you're going to make money out of it or you're not. Even it turned to be that I wouldn't make any money out of it. I would still have a blast from what I was doing. I think that's important. I'm glad we kind of hit on that at the end and then skip over that because, yeah, I mean, you still might have been one of the best workers at your old company, but I think sometimes there's a switch when you start doing your own thing and visualizing your own goals or what's driving you, whether it's someone said you couldn't do it or you want to make X amount of money so you can have a lot more freedom or whatever it is. Yeah. We appreciate you joining us on the interview. I guess, is there any last words of wisdom that you want to leave with us? Words of wisdom, except yes. let it be. So yeah, I mean, I always say entrepreneurship is a marathon in a sprint pace. It's all about hustling and being disciplined and about the processes and about the path and about the vision. Surround yourself with people that can support you, that provide you good energy. So easy to go down by one single person. So surround yourself with a good energy. That's super important. Just have fun with what you do. And if someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, is there a good way for them to reach you? Yeah, email would be the best way. Do you want to tell us your email address so maybe they can write you a letter saying thanks? Sure. My email is al, E-Y-A-L, at yogibo.com, E-Y-O-G-I-B-O.com. All right, A-L. Well, thank you very much for doing the interview. Thank you so much for having me. It a great time. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 75 with John of Sticker Giant. Episode 73 with Steven of Tower Paddleboards. Episode 67 with Jamie Price of Great and Beer. Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Try episode 61 with Andrew of Agora Northwest Coffee Systems. Episode 58 with Alijo of Blue Smart Luggage. 
a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. We'll try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years. Or episode 52 with Chris White of Shinesty Clothing. And episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, we're a virtual family here at Millionaire Interviews. That means you, the listener, the guest, the editors, and the host. And so don't forget our... Hell, is a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Share the podcast.